Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Available in three colors, its thin light design, built-in HD camera, and touchscreen turns any space into your workspace. More at surface.com slash laptop go. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. When Scott Sampson was named executive director of the Cal Academy of Sciences earlier this year, he came with an impressive resume. Sampson is a paleontologist who has led museums in Utah and Colorado. He's an author who wrote the pro-science, pro-discovery book, How to Raise a Wild Child. And most recently, he was the president and CEO of Science World British Columbia. But children and their parents who have watched PBS over the last decade will likely recognize Sampson as Dr. Scott, the enthusiastic scientist on the TV show Dinosaur Train. Here's a little earworm for you before we get started. We'll travel the world in sunshine and rain and meet all the species on the Dinosaur Train! Dinosaur Train! Dinosaur Train! Dinosaur Train! We're When Samson arrived at the Chronicle for our podcast interview, I was planning to ask a few Cal Academy questions in the beginning and a few dinosaur train questions at the end, but it turned out it's all connected. Science and culture become one when you're talking to Dr. Scott. Here he is after I asked how he decides on a name when he discovers a new dinosaur. That led to this fantastic conversation about the time he named a carnivorous dinosaur after one of his favorite rock stars. We'd be out in the field listening to music, and sometimes we'd listen to Dire Straits. And as serendipity would have it, every time we did, we tended to find bones of this new little carnivorous dinosaur, and it had buck teeth. And so we thought one night, probably too late at night, somebody said, hey, why don't we name this after Knopfler? And we, in Madagascar, it seemed like a really good idea. So we got back, and we did. It was published in a high-profile journal. The British tabloids attacked me and said that I named this after him only because either A, he's a rock dinosaur, Oh, no. Or B, he's ugly and buck-toothed. Um, fortunately, Knopfler took it in the spirit intended, and he sent me a dozen tickets to his New York oh, City concert. Oh, that's excellent. I was able to take the whole crew. And, and the name is the Knopfler? It's Mashikasaurus Knopflerai, which <laughs> translates to the vicious lizard of Knopfler. Very fun conversation. We talk about the Cal Academy, past, present, and future. Dr. Scott had some very sweet stories about being recognized by children and adults in public places. We get into coyote sightings in Golden Gate Park. And throughout the conversation, he talks about why in this era of doomsaying, it's important that kids think positively about their future. We're your concierge for culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Dr. Scott Sampson, welcome to the Chronicle and welcome to San Francisco. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be back. Pleasure to be back. So you've already you're already answering one of my first questions, but I got to ask you first. Um, I have children of the dinosaur train age. Do I call you Dr. Scott, Dr. Sampson? What what are the what are the rules here starting out? Well, given that you're an adult, let's just go with Scott. Although um, <laughs> I'm so used to hearing Dr. Scott, I don't really even hear it anymore. So uh, it's whatever you're comfortable with, but Scott's generally my bias. Excellent. Well, returning to San Francisco, you said, 
You've been here before. Have you lived here before? I have. My wife and I have owned a home in Muir Beach um, on Highway 1 there in West Marin for 14 years, and we lived here full-time for about seven seven to eight of those years. Wow. I did not know that. I, I thought you had been in all other parts of, I think, like Denver, I think Utah, I think Canada. All those things are right, and living here. <laughs> and in many ways, this is home. This is where we brought up our daughter, our youngest daughter, and um, it this really does feel like coming home to me, and um, so I'm thrilled to be back. Excellent. Well, welcome back. Um, I wanted to start out with your own origin story. What got you interested in science? Do you remember? what Was it dinosaurs? Uh, it was, uh, I have to credit my mother. My mother was the one who took responsibility for getting me outside, taking me out into wild places, um, out into our local forest. We went camping every year with our whole family. My parents would take my sister and I out of school and we go camping in the Canadian Rockies, uh, sometimes venturing south of the border into Washington State and places like that. And so I feel like I was a nature kid growing up. And then when I got exposed to dinosaurs, I just lit up. Um, and. It, Paleontology is one of the first words I learned how to spell. There was a time in my life when I could reliably spell the word paleontologist and not my own last name. <laughs> was it something like, I mean, were you the kid who in elementary school, I'm going to be a paleontologist and it happened? Yes, Yeah. absolutely. And, it, and of course, that's kind of bizarre because a lot of kids decide they want to be a paleontologist and most of them actually grow up. I just never did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Congratulations on that, following your dream, and, and at Cal Academy of Sciences, where I fell in love with, I mean, I, th those are my earliest, like, I love science memories, are going to the Cal Academy, and back then it was very different. It was this kind of labyrinth that you could just kind of go around a corner and discover something you hadn't seen, even if you'd been there 12 times. Had you been to the, the original one? Yeah, yeah, I spent time at the original one. I've known the last several executive directors. And uh, speaking of following your dreams, I feel like I've been able to follow my adult dream. And, and I really am now sitting in my dream job as the executive director of the Cal Academy. It is a phenomenal institution. It's unlike anything else on the planet. Yeah. W what was your first exposure? Was it uh, as a visitor, as a scientist? My first exposure was as a visitor, um, just going and exploring the aquarium. And um, then I did come as a scientist and uh, came to see some fossils a long time ago. I can't even remember what it was. I so How to Raise a Wild Child um, is your book. And I think, you know, living in the Bay Area, I have two kids I'll take my kids out and we go outdoors, but it's a struggle. It's not what they necessarily want to do. How much is Cal Academy about what the Academy does and how much of it is about outreach and teaching parents and kids about how to maybe explore science, uh, explore this wonderful area a little bit more? I think a love of science begins with a sense of wonder. And a love of nature begins with a sense of wonder. So what we want to be is a wonder factory at some level. We want to be the place that really s ignites that sense of wonder in a lasting, meaningful way. And I think that the Academy has been doing that. I mean, we go back to 1853, three years after California became a state. And we've been involved in that wonder business for a long time. We know that, like, today, the average kid... 
um, spend seven to ten hours a day looking at screens and on the order of seven minutes playing outside. Wow. Um, and this has all happened in a generation. I grew up as a free-range kid. You know, my mother kicked me out at the beginning of the day and told me not to come back when the streetlights came on. And I'm pretty sure I can remember hearing the door lock behind me as I went outside. <laughs> that does not happen anymore, right? And, and there's all this fear and, and kids are obsessed with screens. And I'm not trying to say we need to have a back-to-nature movement, but we need to balance screen time with green time. We need to get kids experiencing nature firsthand. Because if they don't, why are they ever going to care about the places we live, let alone take care of those places? Mm. So it's critical to the health of kids whose health is suffering from this indoor migration, this indoor lifestyle. And it's critical to the health of the places that we live and I think the Cal Academy is already doing a lot of good work in this area around environmental education, et cetera. We're in the archive. We're in the Chronicle archive. I could just tell there was a gleam in your eye. You're an archive guy. Um, I'm fascinated by the Cal Academy archive. What is that place like? You've been there. And how do we get what's in there to the people? And Because and, it's a mystery to a lot of us. And I know there's a lot of history in there that you know you can't put it all on the museum floor, but how do people get to interact with that and see that? Yeah, I am an archive guy. I mean, I've collected dinosaurs all over the world, and um, most, in fact, all of those fossils have gone into museums, um, into museum archives. And the reality is that for any natural history museum, like 99% of the stuff never gets out on public exhibition. So it's one of those things that people just don't even really know exists. And we're looking at ways we can really bring it on the floor. In fact, right now we are developing a new collections gallery that will feature our collections on a rotating basis. And we're really excited to get that up and running so that people can go in and not just see the collections, but understand why we do this. Why do we have, you know, a hundred uh, Darwin's finches from the Galapagos Islands. Why would we ever do that? What's the point? And it turns out that having this, these collections, having this variation is critical for answering questions that haven't even been asked yet. Mm -hmm. So, for example, with those finches, they were collected before we even really had genetic techniques of any kind. And now we can go and do genetic sampling and explore these um, objects in a brand new way that wouldn't have been possible had these archives not existed. Yeah. Cal Academy has always been a very kid-focused education in the front organization since I was a kid and before that. Um, is that part of what attracted you to it, or is that part of what makes you a good fit? Mm, I'm definitely um, a kid education guy on the one hand. On the other hand, I really believe in lifelong learning and extending that learning from kids through adults. It turns out that uh, adult understanding of science comes mostly from informal learning settings like the Cal Academy. Only a small fraction of what we know about science comes from any time in a classroom. So we've been looking at ways that the Academy could become like a convening hub where we're bringing not just children and teens, but adults in to talk about the pressing issues of our time. I mean, where else do we go and have these conversations? I mean, you think about San Francisco, which I know is a passion of yours, Peter, and, and you think, okay, we can look back in the past 50 years, 100 years. Well, let's look ahead 50 years, mm -hmm. you know, or even just to 2050. 
There isn't a single human being alive that could tell you what a thriving San Francisco should look like in 2050 or could look like because yeah. it's so complicated. You have to take into account culture and um, economics and technologies like AI and the changing ecosystem and climate change, all these things. We need to be co-creating the future. And and we're having conversations right now about how the, the academy could help with that conversation. Is that a harder conversation to have with kids when my generation is just filled with so many doomsayers and you know, climate change, what's going to happen, the sea level rise in San Francisco. How do you connect with kids in a way where these are very real issues, but also try and keep it positive and have them think about a positive future? Wow, that's a really good question. I have a daughter who's now 17. And when she was about eight, nine years old, I asked her one day, so when you're really old, like the age of your grandmother or something, you know, 75, is the world going to be better? Is it going to be worse? Or is it going to be the same? And she looked at me like I had two heads and she said, Daddy, of course it's going to be worse. And I said, who told you that? And she says, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that the yeah. planet's getting hotter and that it's going to be bad for people and other life. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, she's only like eight years old. And this is her belief. Well, it turns out this is the norm. And when we think about it, no wonder there's the number of post-apocalyptic movies has doubled every decade since the 1950s. So the messages that kids receive are all about doomsday and how things are going to get worse. And this is what the media feeds us all the time. But it doesn't have to be that way. We know exactly what we need to do to move into a thriving future where people and the rest of nature can live harmoniously. We're just not doing it right now. And partly, it's a value shift we need to do. So what we can do at the Academy is highlight not only what's going on, we're not going to pull back from the reality, but every time we do that, we can talk to people about how they can be empowered to go and make a difference in the world. Because... The decisions we make every day do influence the future in meaningful ways. Yeah. Thank you for that pep talk. <laughs> I feel like, I'm feeling better. Um, I got to ask about Dinosaur Train. When, when I heard Dr. Scott Sampson is the new Cal Academy executive director, I'm like, Dr. Scott, Dinosaur Train? That's where I saw you for the first time. And uh, you're smiling, so you, you seem to be okay with this line of questioning, but I, I got to ask you, how did that start? And was that something that you were seeking or did it just sort of come to you? If I worked on fossil fish, I never would have got a phone call from the Jim <laughs> Henson company, right? It's, and I was living in Muir Beach and I got this phone call one day from a vice president at the Henson company, which is not something that happens all the time. And it was a woman who said, you know, Dr. Samson, this is back when they actually called me Dr. Samson. And uh, she said, we're doing this show for PBS and it's all about dinosaurs. Do you think you might want to get involved? And I said, wow, that sounds great. What are you going to call it? And I said, she said, well, we're going to call it dinosaur train and I said you can't call it that and she said why not and I said because I'm a paleontologist and we're always trying to convince people that humans and dinosaurs didn't live at the same time you can't go sticking them both together like it's the Flintstones or something <laughs> and she said no 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 don't worry we're only gonna put dinosaurs on the train and I stopped and I thought well that's just brilliant right like that's like trains and dinosaurs that's like chocolate and peanut butter if you're four years old so um, I said, yeah, I was really interested, 
But my caveat was, they'd ha- if I was going to host the show, I said, you got to let me have a tagline at the end that's about getting kids out into nature. Because the last thing I wanted to do was to create one more thing that would addict kids to screens. So my wife, Tony, came up with the line that I use at the end of every episode, which is, get outside, <laughs> get into nature, and make your own discoveries. And I'll be honest, we had no idea if a television show could encourage kids to turn off the TV and go outside, uh-huh. that was an untried experiment. Ten years later, I'm very happy to say that it was a, a roaring success. Not only was it successful for Dinosaur Train, and we changed the whole show to make it about nature connection, but PBS has since launched other shows that are about nature connection because it was it did so well. Yeah, excellent. Are you, is Dinosaur Train still... In production, yeah. So you're still Dr. Scott I from Dinosaur still Train. Still Dr. Scott. It's now. Uh, it started in 2009. So we're now into like our third generation of kids. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Um, but it it's it airs all over the world. I think last I checked, it was in airing in over a hundred countries, and uh, it's been this phenomenon that I never ever anticipated when I originally got that phone call. I've seen a lot of Dinosaur Train. I don't remember any location shots at the Cal Academy. Maybe I missed it. Are we going to see more Dinosaur Train at the Cal Academy? Is that a possibility? Well, we're waiting to confirm the next season of the show, but I have they have expressed interest, and I think that would be really fun to do some stuff at the Cal Academy. Uh, I would I would welcome that opportunity. Excellent. Well, I, I have a few kind of lightning round questions, um, if that's cool. Uh, I think I have uh, you down that you've discovered 15 different dinosaurs. And I've watched Dinosaur Train, the episode with the buddy Saurus, and know from that that you have some influence in naming the dinosaurs. Um, Is that true? And uh, how do you go about figuring out what to name a dinosaur when you've discovered it? Um, You could name a dinosaur almost anything you want, um, but typically people follow some kind of, like it's often Greek or Latin in it, just typically like saurus means lizard, because we used to think dinosaurs were more like lizards, and it turns out they're more like birds. Um, But I've named a dinosaur after a rock star. I've named it after um, somebody who found it. I've named her after the place it was found, so the, you know, uh, Cosmoceratops is my favorite dinosaur. It's a horn dinosaur related to Triceratops. Triceratops has three horns on its head. Cosmo means ornate horned face, and it has Cosmoceratops has 15 <laughs> horns on its head. So it absolutely blows away Triceratops. <laughs> it's the most ornate dinosaur known. Excellent. I would be really tempted to. I'm a big Rush fan. I'd have like Getty Leosaurus. <laughs> you said a rock. I, I, I'm backing you up there. Who did you name a dinosaur after that was a rock star? Mark Knopfler, the lead oh. singer of Dire Straits. Oh, uh, great choice. <laughs> so, and the, 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 I'll tell very quickly the story is we'd be out in the field listening to music and sometimes we'd listen to Dire Straits. And as serendipity would have it, every time we did, we tended to find bones of this new little carnivorous dinosaur. It had buck teeth, and so we thought one night, probably too late at night, somebody said, "Hey, why don't we name this after Knopfler?" And we, in Madagascar, it seemed like a really good idea. So we got back, and we did. It was published in a high-profile journal. The British tabloids attacked me and said that I named this after him only because either a he's a rock dinosaur oh, no. or b he's ugly and buck-toothed. Um, fortunately, Knopfler took it in the spirit intended, and he sent me a dozen tickets to his New York oh, City that's concert. Excellent. I was 
able to take the whole crew. And, and the name is the Knopfler. It's Mashikasaurus Knopfleri, which <laughs> translates to the vicious lizard of Knopfler. Uh, I'm tempted to end the podcast right there because it's not going to get better than that. But I, I still have a few lightning round questions for you. Um, in Golden Gate Park, uh, through San Francisco, and I, I formulated this question before I knew that you lived here. Have you seen a coyote yet? Just chilling, walking around. Last week, I was walking into Golden Gate Park. I actually took the bus to work. I was walking into the park, and there was a woman ahead of me with two relatively big dogs, and I saw her turn around and come back out and look back over her shoulder, and then two coyotes came out of the bushes really interested in her dogs, and she was not going to have any of it, and she just turned around and went the other way, (laughs) and I just kept walking, and they just looked at me like, who the heck are you and what are you doing in our park? <laughs> they, so, they have this look and it's it, it very much is like, oh, you're still here? You know, it, it's not a fearful look. It's cautious. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. They're not, not. They don't seem overly nervous, though. No, I, I think it's been kind of a nice coexistence. I don't know. I, um, how often are you recognized by voice or by sight? I mean, can you get through an airport? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can get through an airport and, and that no one will notice. It is funny that you mention my voice. A lot of people hear my voice and they start looking around and they recognize me from my voice. The strangest thing is that kids rarely recognize me because for most preschool kids, I only exist on television. I'm not really a human being. And so when their parents go, wait a minute, are you Dr. Scott? Oh, my God, look. Look, Kristen, this is Dr. Scott. They kind of have this look on their face, and sometimes the response is they'll come up and hug my leg. Sometimes they'll just laugh, and other times they'll just start to cry. And it's a weird, <laughs> it's a weird kind of reaction. But I feel very honored to be able to to be Dr. Scott, the paleontologist. Yeah, I mean, I I would think uh, kids are so unassuming that you'd probably have less people taking surreptitious selfies. Um, which is, you know, what probably happens to like Adam Savage, but you probably have more kids just coming up to you in a natural way. And that's got to be nice. too. It is nice. And the, the one that cracks me up are the men in airports that go, wait a minute, you're Dr. Scott, the paleontologist. Can, let's do a selfie. I want to show my kid. And they put their arm around me and they're taking <laughs> pictures and I'm going, and who are you? But uh, <laughs> it's, it's cute. Well, my last couple of questions were assuming that you were um, new here. You've been here for a while, so I'm going to get a little bit of a deeper dive. Instead of, you know, what's been your best meal so far, what's your best burrito in San Francisco? My best burrito in San Francisco? Wow, there's there's a place on Fillmore, um, and I boy, am I going to come up with the name of it. It's a place on Fillmore um, uh, right near Lombard, like two blocks off. And um, this is totally this happens all the time. Heather Knight has a lightning round and she asks this question to like every politician she has on. And so many people don't know the name of their yeah. favorite burrito place, but can like list the menu. Right. So, no. And, and I've, I've Fillmore I've, and Lombard Cross Street is good enough. It's, <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go through the, the full Heather Knight lightning round. Uh, there's only two more favorite San Francisco movie. Favorite San Francisco movie, you know, I'm because I now I've just I just moved to Pacific Heights of all yeah. places, and I rewatched the movie Pacific Heights, and so off the top of my head that jumps out at me as a pretty cool, uh, amazing movie. That's not a bad one. And um, uh, finally, favorite place in San Francisco to get a stiff drink if that's your interest. Whoa. 
I haven't needed that yet. <laughs> that's good news. <laughs> so I'm afraid I don't have a good one for you. Well, that's good news. Um, and uh, very excited to meet you and, and get to talk to you. And I'm, I'm a little more excited about the Cal Academy. I was already really excited, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see you there and excited to see where it goes from here. Well, thank you. And uh, I appreciate you having me on today, Peter. And, and I'll just finish by saying that um, we are pretty excited at the Academy about next steps. And we are looking to um, be catalysts that are, can really help power positive change. And we don't expect to be able to do that on our own. We know it's going to be in deep collaboration. And so we're looking for good partners as well. Um, so uh, the future is bright. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Awesome. Great way to end it. Thank you, Dr. Scott. Thank you, Peter. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Scott Sampson. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producer is King Kaufman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.